And we're live with our 225th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on X, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on X. Seth, say hi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We are excited, as always, to be here, to be talking, um, to catch back up. We're very excited to have Brian with us today from Now Secure. Um, we'll get into introductions shortly with him and his background, which sounds super interesting. We were already talking about it on the pre-show a little bit. Um, as far as announcements go, um, I really don't have a lot um, outside of, uh, you know, join us on Slack, ping us there, watch for announcements on upcoming training courses. Uh, we've got a couple of um, conferences that we're targeting for the Practical Secure Code Review. And we have AI updates. Uh, Ken and I have been talking quite a bit um, as far as how we how to utilize AI in code reviews, right? Um, and the different approaches that can be used to help speed up our process, the manual process that we do on a daily basis. Um, yeah, outside of that, Ken, I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? Any places that you're going to be? My travel has slowed down just because it is Q4. And yeah, that's kind of hellacious timing for me on the consulting side. So. Anything from you? I talked to the organizers of CactusCon yesterday or one of them. And uh, so that's going to happen February 16th and 17th. So put, mark that on your calendar if y'all want to go to CactusCon. Uh, I'm going to be for sure making my way out there. May even look to do some sponsoring or something like that. So I'm, I'm stoked. Um, but yeah, no, besides that, no travel. No travel is a good tra <laughs> good times. Like two months of no travel at least. Sweet. Um, good call. All right. Then, yeah, with that, um, we would like to introduce Brian Reed from Now Secure. Brian has an interesting mobile background, and we're going to dive into it. I know it's been a while on the podcast since we talked about mobile security testing, um, and he's been instrumental or part of the uh, mobile ASVS project uh, at OWASP. But before we get into that, I know he was involved um, early on, like his resume, you know, with BlackBerry. So, um, Brian, if you want to just give a short introduction and like, tell us what you did at BlackBerry, kind of how you got into the security space. Let's just start there and kick things off. So thanks for having me guys. Uh, fa fan of the podcast, uh, have my own DSO bunch, uh, monthly live stream as well. So it's, it's great to be able to share with the community. So, uh, I am an old mobile tech guy. You can tell by all my gray hair. I've been around for a little while. Um, way back when in the 1990s, I got involved with Microsoft and a small airplane company called Boeing to try to create one <laughs> of the first mobile apps that ever existed. Um, and that early touch of mobile in the late 90s led me to getting involved as a partner with RIM on the pager side oh, wow. to produce the first app that ran on a pager. So just think about that. Um, went off and did other stuff, you know, kind of mobile disappeared. Boom, round 94, 95, got involved with another mobile company that was a partner of BlackBerry. And at that point, the smartphone existed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in working with that partner, I eventually became part of BlackBerry as it went through its ascendant world. And back then, the debate was whether Microsoft, Nokia or BlackBerry was going to win the mobile race. And 
everyone had modeled that mobile's penetration in the world for smartphones would maybe be 20% of the humans in the world would have a BlackBerry, Nokia, or Microsoft Windows CE device. Uh Then this guy, Steve Jobs, happened. (laughs) So um, in that journey, it was really great to be a part of, of BlackBerry and growing in secure email and secure messaging and the interconnected community and world and all those. It was just really sort of an exciting time. Uh, to really grow around. Um, But then the iPhone kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I wound up um, uh, with another company and that company partnered with Good Technology. Good Technology was a way to turn an iPad or an Android device security to meet the FIPS requirements like BlackBerry. And so our early customers were like government and banks who wanted to bring iPads and iPhones in and have BlackBerry grade security. Well, fast forward about two years into that and BlackBerry buys good technology. So I'm back at BlackBerry again. So worked on the transition and integration into that. And today, BlackBerry doesn't make devices anymore. BlackBerry is a more general security company, has some specialized IoT technology. And the old stuff I work with at Boxtone and good technology are still part of the BlackBerry portfolio. But as you've seen, they bought a bunch of other companies. very, yeah. very much going to change their world. So I cannot confirm or deny the movie on BlackBerry, yes, but I doing I mobile, ask. doing mobile for the better part of 25 years and something mobile security related for the better part of like 16 or 18 years. I yeah. landed at Now Secure. Now Secure is a partner of good technology and was doing forensic pen testing for the secure container that good technology was creating. Mm-hmm. And now Secure did a bunch of testing in the early days of Samsung Knox, which is a way to make a Samsung device super secure, like the kind of good technology or BlackBerry stuff. And Samsung was taking a run at the enterprise and government world with a partitioned device that had a secure enclave on it. Um, So I joined Now Secure, and I've now been here for five or six years, and I serve in driving strategy. I'm an evangelist. I work with OWASP on the MASVS. I do a lot of talks. Um, I drive a lot of our strategy in the market and a lot of the innovations we've done over the years. And that kind of brings me here today. So that's a little yeah. bit of my crazy origin story. Yeah, that, that, that's good. I mean, I have I, I have lots of questions, right? Um, it's more kind of related on to like, you know, the path. Everybody's path into security always seems to be a little bit of a winding, right? Like winding road. Um, you know, what is it, you know, where did you start like from a, like a, an educational perspective to get into like the pager and the you know that that community at large right like yeah so way was, back in the day i get it so um i was one of the first peoples to work on software around windows okay. um, and was involved in this thing that was this weird windows development environment called visual basic <laughs> Um, which then became Visual Studio and a bunch of other things there. So I had a lot of application development, which is how I got involved in like the early days of window devices, building apps and some things like that. Now, the company I worked for, I was a partner of Microsoft. The company I worked for worked with all the large banks and telcos, and a hmm. lot of industrial companies. And that's how I got involved, like in the, the Boeing industrial project. We did a mobile project with Home Depot when they were getting started. And so on and so forth. So that first taste of mobile was, if you if you think of that world as sort of Nokia, Microsoft Windows, late 90s-ish thing. Now, one mm-hmm. of the banks we were working with wanted to be able to do something on a pager. And so I was part of this little innovation group in my company, and that's how I got the pager. Security was never anything for me until I partnered with BlackBerry. And what okay. we were helping BlackBerry do was really what today we would call resiliency. 
So we were bringing high availability, high reliability, application performance management style capabilities to the BlackBerry world because I'd come from development and scalable systems. And so my company was helping the, you know, BlackBerry grow high volume, high scale, massively distributed customers who had 200,000 Blackberries and wanted it to run on five nines. Yeah. I bled into the security side from the performance side. And so as part of working with them, I learned about the BlackBerry architecture and the secure enclave and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what made it a better world. And then the application level security happened actually when I joined Good Technology because we were trying to make mobile apps secure for iOS and Android to mimic what was going on on a BlackBerry device. And so my learning is very adjacent. I didn't didn't aim to become a security guy. I kind of fell into it through mobile, Mm -hmm. doing mobile performance and scalability, and then kind of crawled my way into mobile applications. Okay. In the mobile world. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Like from a... I mean, you know, the the BlackBerry movie kind of goes into the whole availability, like the ability to, you know, support so many devices um, in a world where that just wasn't the case in the past, right? right. Um, and so, you know, falling into it from that angle, I, I mean, it feels natural, right? I'm sure that's just, you know, how it goes. Um, sweet. Yeah. I, I mean, any other comments on the movie specifically outside of, yeah. like um, You know, like, like all movies, you know, if you talk to people who are related to what was the Facebook movie is like, you know, how the social network movie, how accurate really was that? There's a lot. I mean, I didn't live all this stuff in the BlackBerry movie, so I can't attest to it, but some of the twists and turns that happened in the market, I very much lived through. Uh-huh. Um, and so the thing that blew, blew me away was when I was having meetings with wall street banks and asking them what features they wanted next. And they're telling me the feature I want is BlackBerry security on an iPad. And that's when I knew mm-hmm. something was up, right? So so for me, a lot of it was a really great ride with BlackBerry. And then this really unusual disjointed shift in the market that suddenly became everybody's got a tablet, everybody's got a phone, everybody wants connectivity, right? Yeah. That, was, that was pretty wild because I always saw them as a, having a great defensive moat and you know they were clearly the best of breed right in in terms of what they did with secure messaging and some of the early app services that were on it and so on and so forth so um, yeah the movie's interesting there's been some books written about it too and you know probably yeah. a, somewhere someone could do a harvard business school study on um myopathy and ignoring what's going on in the market around you while the market changes yeah which is which is really i think what happened there yeah. Um, wasn't that the advantage now that you're mentioning BlackBerry security, wasn't that that he, the their initial advantage was something along the lines of like enterprises could uh, securely manage those devices? Oh, more, absolutely. More so than, I mean, BlackBerry than, uh, had every Apple. security thing on the planet. They had every cert. They were FIPS certified. They met every government regulatory stuff. If they went into a country like Germany and Germany said, by the way, I need you to get this other cert or support this other secure capability for government use, they would do it. Not spying on people, more like you know locking it down. So it's really incredibly well locked down environment. What basically happened, I would, I would articulate from a mobile perspective, is people just like the iPhone and Android experience better. And they were commoditized into the marketplace. And so what wound up happening was you had this QWERTY keyboard thing from BlackBerry. As soon as it tried to be a touchscreen device, that got really funky. 
but my iPhone and my iPad are killer touchscreen devices and have all these apps and BlackBerry had a very limited app ecosystem. So to me, a lot of it is the apps and the app experience on the, on the iPhone and Android is what beat BlackBerry. And what was shocking to me was in seeing these high secure scenarios where they were just breaking the rules and CISOs were like writing off and granting exceptions. Like, yeah, we have these high security requirements, but I'm gonna grant an exception to the CEO to use an iPad with company data. Yeah. So the whole ease of use of iPhone and Android clobbered, literally clobbered the CISO and the security side and beat them into submission. Now, yeah. part of the reason I joined Good Technology, I was like, oh, this is really cool. iPhone and Android's growing like a rocket. They have security. They make an iPhone and Android device as secure as a BlackBerry. This ought to go like gangbusters. And it did for a while. And then people just started saying, you know what? I really don't care that much about mobile security like I thought I did before. And so while there's industrial strength, BlackBerry devices, hardware, software solution, and there's high security, good technology, containerized secure solution, the default stuff on an iPhone is good enough for most business scenarios. And so boom. Mm -hmm. Right. Apple, Apple and Android didn't focus a lot on building security to meet BlackBerry. They didn't try to fight that fight. They tried to make the best consumer driven devices that could be used at work. Yeah. Right. And so it's interesting how well that worked. It did. If you look at a lot of things today, the consumerization of what we can, can traditionally think of as technology is driving so many things. Right. People prefer the easy to use. They prefer the easy to buy versus the industrial strength um capabilities for many things unless they're in some unique market where they need to have it oh that's an interesting comment by leisure suit larry which is uh cydia and jailbreaking from users wanting more than what the device providers gave everyone and uh, drove the app store creation and then every device manufacturer ended up having some sort of correction around that um yeah, yeah i do remember when there was there there were so many limitations and i mean I think, yeah, it, which, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into, but I, I look back at those early days of testing and, and uh, just messing with phones and like iPhones specifically. Wild West. Yeah, it was the Wild West. It, it was absolutely the Wild West. I mean, and, and we were working really hard, like a good to lock down, create a contain containerized session. And so how do we do that? Well, we had to jailbreak the devices and then test the software mm -hmm. on it. It was easy to root an Android device. And we had our own testing teams. We had outside pen testing companies and forensics companies that were banging on us and so on and so forth. And fast forward to today, Apple's been fighting the jailbreak for a really long time. And it's really hard now to jailbreak a device reliably and keep it jailbroken, right? So yeah. if you're a mobile pen tester today, your life is really tough uh, in terms of just managing that that testing environment. I think that's one of the reasons like Corellium, if you're familiar with Corellium, they're virtualized devices, hardware-based virtualized devices. They're being in the research community and the advanced pen testing community because it gets over that hurdle of the, the pen test and allows people to focus on the actual work they're trying to do uh, yep. in testing an environment. Um, but we, we want safe and secure. Like no one was jailbreaking a BlackBerry device to see if it was safe. Like there's this whole interesting thing about the BlackBerry ecosystem had built up so much trust and so many certifications that the whole notion of like jailbreaking and testing didn't exist the way developed in the app ecosystem for iPhone and Android. Completely discontiguous model. People trusted yeah. what BlackBerry was doing. They had all these different kinds of certifications and independent third-party certs that they just trusted that environment. 
when when Apple and Google weren't security is the most important thing, the way BlackBerry was more consumer ease of use, app store access, things like that. Then people became concerned about testing it over time, like many other things. And you know, you're often running with customizations like the jailbreaks and you know, the various things that have evolved in the land of security and privacy that we know today. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that kind of brings us to MASVS, right? Like, you know, we were jailbreaking, like uh, the rooted devices um, on the Android side. I mean, the early versions of iOS didn't even have the concept of apps, right? Like I remember yeah. that just being like the web, you know, the web pages that you could pin to the machine. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a phone and it got pushed that direction to Ken's point. But um, I know you guys just released that like version 2.0.0 of MASDS. Like, how does that tie into the testing framework and like what penetration sure. testers can use or assessment? It's good. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to take in a little journey of mobile, right? So um, if you go all the way back to 2013, the OWASP top 10 and the mm -hmm. ASVS were well mature. And uh, around about 2013, a group of folks got together and said, you know what? Mobile is different enough that like if I try to use the ASVS, there's stuff that fits and stuff that doesn't because the architecture of mobile is different and the capabilities of mobile is different. And there's also stuff the ASVS is missing. Right. And so the original OWASP Mobile Top 10 came out in 2014 and that kind of evolved through a few revisions. Then an MASVS was created. Um, and then, you know, version one came out 1.x.x and we went through some revisions and now MASVS v2.0.0 came out earlier this year and we're about to finish MASTG to go with it, version mm -hmm. two. Um, number of things that we've learned along the way, right? So um, at some point, maybe I'll detour into the differences between web and mobile, but I'll talk about kind of what we've learned more recently with, with the MASVS and the original um, MASVS version one kind of assumed it needed to be its own dock. So inside of it, there were also API security testing characteristics. Inside of the dock, there were also things that really should live in the ASVS and not be part of MASVS, right? Like this is the mobile part. If you need to test the other parts, go to the ASVS or the API security top 10 or something like that. So one chunk of this was removing things like architecture and any of the tests or controls that were related. They're really covered better in the ASVS rather than trying to keep them in sync, which became a problem. Right. Second thing was recognizing that we had a lot of MASVS controls and a lot of tests and it had commingled tests with controls and categories. Mm -hmm. So we've moved a number of the controls and categories to test because they really belong there. So what you have today with MASVS 2.0 is you have seven, not eight controls um, because architecture is pulled out. They're all smaller and more focused on very specific areas, right? So um, again, there's some differences with web, but you have storage, you have crypto, you have auth, you have network, you have platform, code, and resilience. And so within each of those, there may be just a small handful of, of MASVS requirements now that are specified in each one because we've really honed in on, on uh, what really matters. We've also recognized the, the similarities and differences with iOS and Android, right? Because there are some variations between the two. Um, the other thing that's advanced substantially is this notion of resilience. And I'll go off into mobile for a second. If, if you think about a web app today, there's a lot of defense infrastructure built into a web app because it's storage 
And a lot of its logic are behind firewall and layers of security, whether that's in the cloud or in your data center or both. So the exposed attack surface of a web app is predominantly the APIs from the back end and then whatever code is downloading in your browser. Mobile, all your IP is on the device. All your IP is on the device. So we were talking about jailbreak earlier. If I jailbreak or root my iOS or Android device, I can see that code. I can tear that code apart. Apple's got some DRM that kind of makes it a little slower, but I can still get there eventually. And there's really great tools like ones we create that are called Frida and Radari that are good reversing tools. They're yep. used for non-mobile as well and so on and so forth. So one of the important things that we've evolved heavily is this notion of resilience, which is basically anti-tampering. Apple and Google have some anti-tampering features and APIs in their development environments, but we strongly recommend using third-party anti-tampering as well. Why? Because your code is in the wild. One of the when I first joined um, Now Secure, one of the things I heard that I had never heard before was from a, a senior executive at a bank in Canada, and um, he was telling me what terrifies us is how much code is in the wild on those iPhone and Android devices, right? And in the first couple of weeks I was here, we did some pen tests along with our automated testing. Some of those pen tests were mind blowing. Like we had one customer who came and said, um, for some reason we keep finding fake coupons on the dark web and we can't <laughs> figure out why. So we, we opened their app up. First thing is we could get to the code. Like there was no anti-tampering in the app. The second thing was they were generating unique coupon codes in the IP on the device, not on the back end. Yeah. So of course, <laughs> of course, the algorithm was on the dark web and everybody's generating yeah. their free coupons, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's just an example where in mobile architecture matters, testing strategy matters, right? And application design, you know, also matter in it. So, so the evolution now is it's a more mature standard. We've got a really strong working team group of different people in the industry have all been involved for a number of years. They're all active pen testers. They're all active training people. They're also working on commercial software, working with commercial companies. Um, I'm not sure how many of those are public, so I'm not going to go down the path of all of them because some of them are using their personal time on it. Uh, but it's really, the MESVS has really matured now. And it's now, like things we just announced, it's now adding privacy. Mm -hmm. So we have a new control in beta that's the eighth control that's around privacy and looking at privacy mandates and privacy requirements, right? So we know that a vulnerability could violate a privacy issue, but we also know there are privacy things that have nothing to do with the vulnerability. Does my app access the address book and can it scrape the contact database? That's a privacy issue. That's not a vulnerability mm -hmm. because it's built for that feature, right? That could be a design paradigm thing. So, um, one of the big things we're working on now is bringing it into privacy. The second thing we're working on is automation. Anyone who's ever used the ASVS knows you can't push a button and automatically generate a test run with ASVS. Yeah. We're trying to get there with MASVS. Okay. And so you'll see more and more automation, automatable tests coming through over the next year because we'd like to get as close as we can as an industry to point and click automation can i plug this thing in my pipeline let my developers run wild while they're coding when they check in their code run a test because you got to test the binary not the source to get accurate behavior and run that and actually have it complete all of the masvs tests and the entire mastg book of tests and give you red light green light at the end that's yeah. the dream and mm -hmm. we may be within a year 
year and a half of, of getting to that, because then that would support the, the fast development cycles, allow people to just create the release requirements of I care about this, I don't care about that, and let it run. We want to do it for privacy, we want to do it for security. So been a really interesting journey. So um, yeah. I wanted to dig into a bit though, because you know, you all have so much experience. I do not have I think the last time I messed around with mobile was it's a little hazy, but I want to say between maybe 2014, 2015, something like that. Um, but anyways, that's kind of where it's dropped off for me. Back then, you know, it was pretty simple. It was a lot of people storing things in plain text uh, in files, you know, like you said, making um, both for Android and for iPhone, you know, making these apps that do things that are super sensitive, but you can like get the code so you can see those, those sensitive operations and reverse them. Those were kind of like some of the most common things, I think. Um, but, you know, I don't know these days, like what are the, I mean, yes, I could look at the mobile top 10, sure. But that's, is that really representative? I'm more curious about sort of what you all hear experience um, having so much you know, so much time on, on, on this, like what are the common bits that you, you see the most? Well, I'll give you two slices of the common bits and, and clearly anyone who's lived in this space will see, should, should be living. You know, if you're out there doing mobile pen testing, what I'm about to say should look like the world that you're seeing. So the first one I'll do is I'll actually work from a benchmark we just, just released. So we've got this thing called the mobile risk tracker and it monitors the top 6,000 apps in the Apple app store and the Google play store by popularity not including things like games because like games don't really matter. Um, so like hospitality, travel, transportation, healthcare, finance, um, you know, those kinds of industries um, are all in there. So um, we decided to go take a slice of that data and say, let's run the MASVS checks against those 6,000 apps and see what we can find. Right. And what we found is what we see in our pen testing and our larger scale customer testing. So the number one vulnerability area is network. There still is a high degree of um, failure for developers to use properly secure network connections. Ideally, they should be doing cert pinning. Cert pinning is not easy. There's a lot of use of third party libraries. More than half of the network data leakage happens with a third-party library, not necessarily first-party code the developer wrote. Now, over the years, right. Apple and Google have tried to improve that by creating ATS yep. and NSC, but the number of developers that deactivate them by default at load time and then roll into their own code is shocking, which is why the number one vulnerability we find and have for years is network. Mm -hmm. Ask a question. So they so they did make it easier. It sounds like, but then developers are are undoing what disabling makes it, it easier to do. They're, they're disabling it. Yeah. yeah. So we actually have a check. We have a static check looking for um, is ATS enabled or disabled, and is NSC network security control enabled or disabled at load time, and we can find that. Boom. Now yeah. that can be a whole lot of reasons. Remember, there's six million apps in the App Store, but five million of them have existed for years. And so some of this is just, they wrote the app before the new APIs oh. were created and they haven't gone back and updated the app, right? So you do have the history thing, right? And ATS was in iOS seven or eight. Um, to give you an example, NSC was Android eight or nine. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's some history to that. Now it would be nuts to write a new app today and not use them. And I, don't, I haven't looked at the data from app age 
to see what that looks like. Our, our pen testing team might be able to see it. Now, the second category is actually platform. So platform is how the app interacts with the operating system. So do you hide text from memory when the app goes in the background, something kind of unique to mobile that's easy for a developer to make a mistake on? Um, are you doing permissions correctly on Android is another place where developers might be saying, well, I'll just open up all the permissions, but that ultimately creates exposure for the user, you know, things like that. Um, and then I glue these together, storage and crypto. So um, there's local storage. Am I storing too much? Am I storing anything at all? Am I storing it in clear text? Is it properly encrypted or not? And then there's just crypto for crypto's sake of doing crypto the right way. And we all know developers, even security people, crypto is a black box that people don't always understand and don't always do the right way, right? Yeah, um, now I'm gonna give you another slice of data. So we, um, we've been doing a lot of talks to the Android developer community. And part of that's because we're working with uh, Google on something called uh, ADA validation. So on Android, Google has a third party security verification program called ADA Masa. Now ADA Masa is just OWASP under the hood. They literally picked up OWASP, took a chunk of the MASVS and said, this is gonna be our certification regime. And then there's six, six um, validation or certification vendors that can certify an Android app meets the security bar. In the training we've been doing, and I just did another one of these a couple of weeks ago at a DroidCon, the number one issue we find on Android is crypto. It's the number one issue. Number two issue on Android is storage, and it's all the same thing. What's also interesting about the Android-specific data is most, and most of the ADA MASA failures we find are third-party code, not first-party code, meaning developers are doing oh. a pretty good job of writing secure code on the Android. The libraries they're choosing are often pretty yucky. And so you wind up, you know, uh, leaking data here or sending data to an improper address. The data may not be encrypted well with the third party library that's sending some of your data off to another resource for processing, uh, you know, things like that. So one of the things Google's doing, by the way, and for those of you working in the Android ecosystem, Google's now publishing the SDK index. So Google is making a vehicle they call the SDK index, which is a place to go see what Android libraries they consider better to use. Notice I didn't use the word safe and certified yet. Maybe that'll happen someday, but these are preferred libraries that are recommended by the Android team that are better to use when you're building an Android app. A lot of this is because all this data we've gathered around these ADA validations about where developer issues are or are not, and how a number of them are actually tied to third-party libraries, right? So the ones in that index are generally really good. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, it's interesting how much, well, it's interesting how similar the, the ecosystems are. So building a, you know, an app in, for Android, for iOS, for the web, but then how the threats differ, right? Like I, I really, like I got distracted a little bit actually browsing through the new MASVS, right? because it is so succinct as far as like the different verification, you know, the different um, topics that you've got included in there and it isn't too prescriptive, right? Like it's definitely very much, Hey, this is, uh, this is what we're concerned about. Like it's, it feels more threat focused as it should be, as opposed to like the testing guide um, and very specific platform um, vulnerabilities. Uh, and, and then it, it also bleeds into this idea of the software or the 
yeah, the software supply chain, right? Um, what SDKs, what third-party libraries are you using to build your software? Are you building something that is safe? And like, we've known that this is an issue. We've speculated about it for years and right. it's coming to a head in both mobile and in and web you know, other, and, and APIs everywhere. Like right now it's having a moment because it is so dangerous. And that's where we see those vulnerabilities pop up. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, the Google SDK, uh, SDK index has been a very interesting path towards kind of helping people, you know, better understand what's out there. Clearly, SCA uh, software supply chain overall is an issue. What's also interesting is the the preeminent SCA vendors that you might think of don't have a lot of third party code uh -huh. uh, in for that's mobile specific in their repos. So yeah. when you go into some of the more popular vendors repos, you'll see miles and miles and miles of web. You know, if you print it all out, miles and miles of web and web history, there's just not a lot of data on the SDKs. We're starting to build out a data set ourselves now that we're seeing that the first party code is getting better and the third party code is getting worse. We're like, OK, well, let's try to better model those things. So, for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we just announced SDK pen testing. So mm -hmm. some of those vendors in the index are now getting SDK pen testing with a validation that goes with it that says this thing is doing crypto and storage and network, et cetera, et cetera, correctly. Um, it's using the OWASP MASVS, but a slice of it that's SDK oriented. But if you think about it, an SDK could do just about anything an app could do in theory. So you can use the MASVS as a test vehicle. And that's been interesting because that gives, um, that will give attestation to other people using your SDKs that says, yeah, this has been tested and it meets the OWASP MASVS standard. So it should be safe to use in your app. Mm -hmm. We think that's an interesting way to kind of help the market get to it and over time we may wind up building out a more of a database of these third-party libraries our commercial software has a few dozen third-party libraries that are vulnerable in it you may remember there was like the russian malware that was push whoosh a few years ago um when um um uh what was the one that just popped oh there's uh another uh uh, APK masking piece of malware that goes in and manipulates the APK at, at load time that then okay. turns into malicious behavior. I can't remember the name of it right now. So, you know, there's people, are, you know, bad guys are messing around with SDKs for mobile just the same way they're doing it in the uh, in the web world. Yeah, that because that was kind of my question, too, is like, you know, we've had all these last few, like maybe five years, there's been all this like, uh, package manager related attacks, right? All these third party uh, attacks and, you know, folks trying to inject malicious stuff into the, the, the web tech stack, basically. Like, is that as prevalent in the mobile world or it's, prevalent, but it's, affecting it differently or? Yeah, it's, it's there. The, the push wish is a good example where push wish is a push notification SDK that third party developers can, you know, developers can use this third party SDK they can license that allows you to just sim very simply do push notifications on any device, any platform, any way using any relay or router. Right. Makes sense. Well, somewhere around the time of the Ukraine war start with Russia, that thing turned into data harvesting malware. So the versions changed and boom, we had data harvesting malware. So basically they did a version update and its behavior changed. Now, this was found by a researcher. The scary part, so, so the researcher came to us in the US, is a researcher related to US government, came to us and said, oh my God, how many apps have this? Well, we, we ran our database of millions of apps in the app store. We found about 8,000 apps in the first 24 hours 
that were like CDC, US Army, uh, Unilever, like big name companies that were using this. And what had happened is this app had a basically a mailing address. The company had a mailing address in the US, but it was a Russian front, right? Mm. So that's an example of that classic sort of popular, effective, good SDK that went bad. Yeah. Um, now, it turns out the owner of the IP was inherently bad and was just leaving it laying in wait till there was a time to use it. Um, and then there's other people uh, that are, you know, intentionally doing doing bad SDKs out there, right? Kind of what do you call it, like a sleeper agent? It was a sleeper SDK that kind of woke up and started doing nasty things. Over the years, there's been a couple of others. More often than not, really, it's the SDK stuff is mistakes, like low quality developers building SDKs and publishing them. Mm -hmm. that don't have security DNA in their development shop. And a lot of these SDK producers do not have a security team. Yeah. Right. I mean, have you ever heard of a security architect working at an SDK manufacturer? So that's a good that, point. So that's why the interesting thing about what we do is because we test the binary, we test the SDK at runtime. Mm -hmm. So we can isolate that while it was running, code was going through this piece of SDK code. It was being transmitted over here in clear text to this insecure endpoint, something, 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 where if you did a source code scan, you might find some behaviors, but you're not going to find what I just described. Yeah. Which is well, and that, that dynamic testing side. Yeah. And I mean, that goes to the point, like most of the time that I get source code for, um, if I'm doing like, we're doing a manual source code review of mobile apps they they explicitly exclude the X SDKs, right? Um, that's That has happened to me multiple times over the last couple of years because they're like, oh, well, this is what we control. So everything else is fine. You just 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 look at this code specifically. Um, and yeah, then the vulnerabilities pop up. First it's a first yep. party code focus, right? So I'm going to yeah. tell you that their behavior is going to change. And so for those of you in the mobile world, make sure you're paying attention to what Apple and Google are up to. So yeah. the data safety section mandate from google that went live in the last 18 months they are now enforcing that developers must attest to the behavior of their first party code and their third party code mm -hmm. so that person asking you for a pen test should be asking for the third party code now yeah Interesting. apple's doing the same thing so apple's got their nutrition label that's kind of their privacy play well uh they announced a worldwide developer conference this year this summer for iOS coming to be mandatory in the spring of next year. And when Apple says it's coming, it's usually coming. It's coming, yeah. The yeah. developer must attest to the privacy, which has some security implications, of first party and third party code. And they have to submit binary readable data about the first party and third party code and use of private data and selective APIs as something called a privacy manifest this coming spring. So. Apple and Google have figured out SDKs are part of the problem. And so they're putting the onus not on the SDK developers, but on the first party developers who are using the third party SDK and they're holding them liable. So um, imagine a point where I submit an app to iOS or, or Android Play Store and you get blocked. And it's because their automated testing has discovered that a third party SDK is doing something wrong. Yeah. That's coming. It, and we've heard it, something that is, already. This kind of sounds like, to my naive ears, like an S-bomb, um, this manifest, this privacy manifest, it sounds similar. The privacy manifest has some S-bomb flavor to it, which is what are the third-party SDKs you're using? Yes, but you also have to talk about what, you're, what private data you're storing, transmitting, uh, and using. And that's where you need a developer to explain what that pri private data is. 
right? So yes, an SBOM is, a, if you look at, if, if you literally look at the privacy manifest construct, you'll see a chunk that looks like an SBOM. What, what's all the third party code in my app, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's a whole nother section, which is what data am I using, transmitting and storing into whom and where am I using, transmitting and storing it, right? So think of it as where is your data going? What data is used in this app and where is it going? And they've got categories of private data, the things you would know for PII, right? Username, password, email address, location are you tracking geolocation of the device you know some of those kinds of things because these devices are like a giant data aggregator oh um, yeah they are right but you also have to talk about you know how you're using are you collecting data from like the address book or are you talking to the sms channel you know things of that nature as well and what they're all trying to do is is it's about what's interesting is the tail wagging the dog is privacy it's all about apple started it it's all about driving privacy through the Apple ecosystem and through the Google ecosystem, which is becoming a stronger hammer in those ecosystems than what we traditionally know as security. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I'm more worried about how my data is used, stored and transmit than I am whether something's vulnerable, maybe, maybe not. As a business yeah. owner, if Apple's going to block me from submitting an app because it doesn't pass privacy, but they don't care about the security, then I'm going to do the privacy stuff. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, because we've, we've, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I've lost my thoughts. I was gonna, I was just gonna ask on the security side. Is that because like the devices themselves have enough compensating controls, and then the privacy just being sort of the thing that's more meaning? There's maybe some ways that to exploit that app. Uh, it would be fairly difficult, um, but the privacy bit—that's that's always on the table yeah. as, as a concern. I think it's a combo of things. I'll use crypto as an example. <clears throat> Having weak crypto is not a privacy issue. Leaking my personal data is a privacy issue, right? So things that we in the security community would call a vulnerability aren't necessarily the same as what uh, an individual or a company would be concerned about from a privacy perspective. A highly secure application could still be storing my PII on a server in China and violating my privacy. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have this interesting like Venn diagram of the two. The reason I articulate is tail wagging the dog is between things like GDPR and CCPA that are serious penalties for privacy violations and some of the controls Apple and Google are putting in and around the app store where they're trying to respect user privacy as well. We're getting this grooming of kind of privacy becomes the stronger driver because I can be blocked from the app store, with, which blocks me from revenue generation, or I can be fined out of existence with GDPR, right? You kind of have that, that, that sort of natural thing where the two go together. And so helping organizations understand both of them as part of kind of our mission now as we expand in security and privacy, because mobile is leading the, the charge on many of the privacy initiatives we're not necessarily seeing in a lot of other places. And that's in part because Apple and Google own the big mobile ecosystems and it's important mm -hmm. to them. So it's driving importance to the rest of us. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I mean, I wonder how much of that is, it's, it's, is coming from the compliance side of the house, right? Like, so GDPR, like they've been punished in the past, Google and Apple both have been fined for leaking privacy data, for leaking, you know, for allowing or having weak controls around that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think also from a marketing perspective, it's really hard to market security, right? Like we've seen that to the general consumer. Whereas, hey, I, you know, if I can market privacy, like I am protecting your data that's on your device as you're interacting with it on a daily basis, that's a lot easier tale to tell yep. uh, 
to consumers than it is like, you yeah. know, yeah. From a I mean, think, think about your parents, unless they're in the industry, security's mystifying to them, right? Security's yeah. like, you know, Harry Potter and Hogwarts or something. But I had an ad pop up in the background on a browser. That's where that came from. Sorry. Um, but um, privacy is like, oh, yeah, what are they doing with my data? Oh, I'm terrified they're tracking me, right? Mm -hmm. So, yep. um, but that's okay the way I kind of look at it because we're all trying to raise the bar to protect people in data. And if privacy mandates coming from the app stores or from governments can help protect data, that's ultimately the reason for a security program is to protect data, right? In the end, mm -hmm. there's different tactics and different things you might be concerned about in one area versus the other, but protecting data is really what we're all trying to do. In mobile, you also have to protect the IP. If I go back to that resiliency issue, if people can get to your source code, right? Yeah. So protecting those things is what matters and whether, whether the, you know, CEO is going to fund the CISO to build a security and privacy program because of privacy mandates. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. And if I'm a smart it's, CISO, I'm going to take that money and make sure I'm getting both privacy and security at the same time. Right. As well, so, I mean, yeah, like that's the context I'm curious about. Are we talking about individual consumers or are we talking about more of uh consumers in a in a business sense and the reason i say this is that i get conflicting messages sometimes it does seem like people care about privacy sometimes you read articles or you see like youtube videos where people you know they don't seem to care at all about about privacy and i and i read specifically that the age group of like young 20 year olds are actually uh um believe that they've already been breached and so it's sort of irrelevant to even irrelevant. concern yeah. yourself with uh privacy so yeah i guess that's my question is um it's a good question you know what you know i don't even know how to, how to phrase this question is it, it why why the mix yes what what are why the mixed messages so, out there i think you know I've got a, I've got technical skills. I've got business skills. I've started companies, right? So I'm going to bring left brain and right brain together on this. It is all right. economics. In the end, it's all economics, right? So think about the brands in your mind that you think are like the safest, most consumer-friendly brands you can think of, right? And they're probably things like, I don't know, Coca-Cola or, you know, something like that, where they have kind of fun ads or like Disney with kids in movies and theme parks, right? And you just kind of work your way through. Generally, consumer brands have this, Apple themselves, right? Have this really kind of strong uh, affinity for their customers. Their customers trust them and love them. What's the worst thing that could happen to any of those companies I just listed? A giant privacy data breach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Loss of trust. Exactly. So look what happened to Facebook when all the crap came out around what Facebook was doing. Yes, there are people still using oh, it. Yeah. I think most people don't trust Facebook. They use it because they use it or they don't. Like I don't use Facebook. My wife does um, and her friends do. Um, but, you know, th that whole notion of I think a big chunk of the, the Facebook is a safe place to be broke with a lot of things that happened around Facebook. Right. So I think that if you're if you have a business that's based on trust with your customer, you're going to over rotate into privacy for logical reasons related to protecting your customer base. And it's going to be a business economic reason for doing it. Now, those companies I listed, I'm sure they're somewhere wandering around saying, make sure we comply with GDPR, but it's the business itself that's determining their customer privacy is paramount. It's, and, you know, they're a, a trust, trustworthy brand. 
there'll be other organizations they will be like, yeah, we don't really care about privacy, but we don't want a GDPR fine. Therefore, I'm going to go do something right. Again, that's economics, but it's right, not yeah. your brand is based on privacy and trust. It's their brand is whatever their brand is. And they just want to make sure they stay out of jail, as it were. What's yeah, that's a good point. Apple? You could you could end up basically testifying in front of Congress if you're Apple and get it really wrong. Well, may, maybe. I mean, I, I, the way I think about it with Apple and Google is they're basically saying we're a natural choke point to help people protect their privacy. And they're they're viewing it not from the manufacturer or vendor side. They're viewing it from the consumer side. They're saying Apple's saying privacy and trust is part of our Apple brand. The app store is something we represent. We don't own the IP for the three million apps that run on the devices, but we want to make sure the ecosystem around those three million apps respect users' privacy. Right. Because their company brand is privacy. Right. right. Um and so if I want to play in their app store, I have to play by their rules. Now, I might be making really good money off of playing in their app store. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Right? So right. Um, so it's it's interesting because I do think the privacy thing is heavily economics and emotionally tied for the it's economics for the business and emotion for the consumer. If you're yeah. B2C, you're going to pay attention to it. If you're B2B, eh, it depends. Yeah. Um, like any other things, right? I mean, that, there's companies make business decisions all the time of what they prioritize, right? Mm hmm. That actually makes what you what you first said makes a lot of sense. Like if you have if you're a big company and you've been established and around for a long time and a lot of people are using your products and they just like emotionally feel like this is just a comforting, safe, like I've been using in this product, this company, this ecosystem for whatever a long time, then along comes some some sort of diminished view of how they, they treat your personal data or, or maybe yeah. it just looks like they don't care. Yeah, that's going to change your perception and maybe move you over to Android or vice good. versa or whatever it might or be. Or vice yeah. versa. Or just say, I'm not going to work with that vendor anymore. You know, right. maybe yeah. I drink Pepsi instead of Coke. I'm just making something up, right? So use a different airline, you know, what have you. There is material brand damage, right? The first largest fine in Europe for GDPR was British Airways who had a mobile breach. Mm -hmm. They were fined 156 million pounds. They eventually negotiated down, but that was one of the, they, so the EU made an example of British Airways for shoddy work related to their mobile apps, right? So mobile is the attack vector that shows you that the attackers are looking at mobile apps for big fortune 100 companies. And that was the attack vector kind of in, and, and that led to the breach, right? So you don't, you don't always hear about giant mobile breaches or you hear about a breach. Like a lot of people know BA got breached. People may not know that it was. Um, a mobile breach. Mobile, yeah. The largest breach of records known that we know of is Under Armour MyFitnessPal. MyFitnessPal was over 100 million records were breached via the mobile app into their server, got root access, right? Yeah. That's the highest breach. Now, what was the ramifications of that? Well, they didn't get fined by anybody, but the CISO and the CIO didn't last very long. Yeah. Right. Yep. Their share price dropped about 20%, I think, in the first 90 days. Again, Under Armour had a trust brand, right? Yeah, so um, they eventually recovered, brought in a security team, more formalized their procedures. They have a trust and safety board. Like they did the whole really smart boomerang, you know, to really make it part of their DNA going, going forward. So it does happen, right? And that's why organizations need to pay attention to mobile as much as they do web, network, API, you know, the other things. Yeah. And actually, that's another question I have. I mean, is, is the... I feel like it's so established for um, when I say it's I'd say like security in the SDLC for uh, web apps, right? Just because that's been, you know, one of the main things I think that we've we've sort of focused on as a community. I mean, 
it's open web application security, right? So, um, but but it, you know, how do, how does that look when you from both of your experiences? How does that look, you know, inside of organizations? Because those teams, I'll just say, from my experience pre 2014 2015 those teams tended to be more isolated and i don't know if that's changed like but at the time that i was working with them they were more isolated off of their own fringe teams doing that weird mobile stuff you know yeah i think um different now it's a really good question so i'll chunk the market into a few segments so you have the mobile first companies like an uber right so right. security is either part of their business or they're not like we ignore games because most of the game companies don't care about security um so um so if you're mobile first, then you probably have a security program if, it, if you're in any kind of business that transacts, for example, with customer data. Um, if you're in a legacy business, big bank, been around for 50 years, that kind of thing. Um, generally, your mobile team was the Wild West on their own, still largely isolated, although mobile and web usually have common backend. So API sec is handled at corporate and API backend logic stuff is generally handled at corporate. Um, and usually in those larger enterprises, the, the web application security program lags, excuse me, the mobile application security program lags the web, meaning they have a very mature web program and mobile always trails it, sometimes by years, right? Oh, interesting. Um, so like I was just involved with a, with a, a customer yesterday and they literally comment on the phone was, we're finally play, we're finally going through the process of maturing our mobile program to match what we've had for three years with web. It's been a three year, <laughs> right? They're really big. I and believe that. They are, right? So that happens, right? So just like the mobile developer is kind of a specialist group that's not quite core, not necessarily operating exactly the same way the mature web team is, often the mobile security is also this kind of hanging off the slide, slightly different, slightly unique. Maybe there aren't any in-house skills and they're outsourcing a bunch of pen testing or using consultants, you know, things like that. So there's there's typically a lag. There are companies where they are in parallel, you know, and have been in parallel for, for a long time. Oftentimes, what they'll do is they'll say, okay, well, we already have this AST program. You know, we're using a check marks, a Vericode, a one of those. Yep. We are doing pen testing with company XYZ. Let's see what they have for mobile. And yep. they might have a SAS scanner. They might have one or two pen testers hiding in the corner that does mobile or what have you. And they'll do some basic hygiene work. Right. And as I said before, the top SCA vendors don't really cover mobile. So if you're relying on a top SCA, don't assume you're getting full coverage for your mobile third party libraries. Same thing happens from a web scanner. So, you know, they might support Swift, but not Objective-C. They might or the other way around or they might only support a certain version of Java, but only builds on these systems. So they the, the, the traditional AST vendors have done a little bit yeah. of work, but they're not like the best of breed thing. So if mobile's first class, you should be using best of breed pen testers who really know what they're doing and use best of breed security tools for your testing and your training, right? Yep. So they just all live in, in different places. What I'll tell you about that OWASP benchmark, just to go back to it, 95% of those 6,500 most popular downloaded apps violate one or more of the controls on OWASP MASVS. So mm -hmm. only 5% are doing it right, which to me says that most of the world has in immature programs, Yep. right? And they might think they've got it licked by doing once a pen, once a year partial pen test on first party code. Great example you had there, Seth, yep. or they might be doing a little bit of Java based source code scanning on Android, but not have anything for iOS. And that's kind of leaving them at risk. 
And so part of the reason for publishing the benchmark report besides the intellectual curiosity was, hey folks, like we'd love to have you, you know, MASVS is free, go download it, use it in your strategy. This will tell you where the edges of the envelope are that you need to test for. And um, here are some areas you should focus on because it's probably where you're most likely vulnerable. Third party app, you know, third party libraries, network, storage, crypto. Um, you know, and if you do that, you can groom hygiene in pretty quickly um, and figure out what you don't know and solve some of those pretty fast and get that program under control. Yep. So that's what we hope you And that's a summary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I mean, that that was going to be my question. And I know, you know, Brian, we're pushing up against top of the hour. I know we've got a hard stop. So, you know, thank you again for, uh, you know, coming here. But that that was going to be my question is kind of like where to start. And I, I think that puts a good summary on it. Right. It's a process issue that we're running into. And that's what I see from a from a consulting perspective is, you know, is that lack of real discipline across all of the different platforms, right? You know, web API, right? Like they lick one, like you were saying, but the others are weak. And so it's great to have like just a, a, a light being shown on the mobile space because it has kind of been that red, that, you know, excuse the phrase, but redheaded stepchild of the, you yeah. know, the security space, right? It has, there's a, there's a security architect consultant I met many years ago, and he said, going into every company and looking at their security program is like a new Rorschach test. You get mm -hmm. those crazy inkblot splotches and nobody's got the full screen. Almost yeah. never does he have somebody with the full, the full picture. And it has to do with the history of how companies grow, right? There's legacy code everywhere, right? Yeah. There's tech debt you're dealing with. There's the business screaming, I need this new app or this new feature, or we want to go into this new market, right? And that's just part of the challenge we all have in building and delivering software and safe and secure is all those different things factor in. Amen. The biggest, <laughs> the biggest thing is man, mobile is a weak point, most likely for your org, and you may or may not know it. And you ought to try to take a look at it to make sure you got enough there that your enterprise is safe, but also, you know, your enterprise delivery is safe and your customers are safe. That's kind of yep. the big thing that I spend a lot of my days talking about. Cool. Yeah. Well, great. Um, we appreciate you coming on, Brian. It's been a fascinating, you know, hour. Very much um, so. I, I'm sure we could go for at least another hour or two. This seems to be a running theme with the guests that we have on, <laughs> um, you know, and so as it matures, we'll, we'll keep a, keep an eye on it. And if you're interested in, you know, a follow-up, we'll definitely, you know, we'll definitely follow up with you on it. Um, any last minute, you know, advice or places that people can find you to ask additional questions? Sure. So you're, you're welcome to find me on LinkedIn. I am Brian C. Reed, because there's many Brian Reeds in the world. Okay. Um, you can also find me at Reed on the Run on Twitter slash X or whatever your favorite social media channel is. Um, and um, thanks everybody for the time here. Take a look at the OS benchmark. If you're not familiar with the OS MASVS program, please get involved. Um, there's a lot of free assets out there to get you going. So um, yep. we encourage everyone. And by the way, if you're a pen tester, people pay a premium for mobile pen testing. Build the skill set, man. It's a good place to to uh, yep. grow your career. It is. It is. Yep. Take a look at it. Um, join us on Slack. Um, if you have additional questions, uh, we can point you at all these resources as well. But uh, Brian, thanks again. And Ken, any last minute thoughts before we close it out today? Oh, just thanks to Brian and thanks to the viewers. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we'll see you soon.